Welcome to Living Proof, the podcast series of the University at Buffalo School of Social Work at www.socialwork.buffalo.edu. We're glad you could join us today. The series Living Proof examines social work research and practice that makes a difference in people's lives. I'm your host, Ajua Robinson, and I'd like to take a moment to address you, our regular listeners. We know you have enjoyed our podcasts, as evidenced by the more than 200,000 downloads to date. Thanks to you all. We'd like to know what value you may have found in the podcast. We'd like to hear from all of you, practitioners, researchers, students, but especially our listeners who are social work educators. How are you using the podcast in your classrooms? Just go to our website at www.socialwork.buffalo.edu forward slash podcast and click on the Contact Us tab. Again, thanks for listening, and we look forward to hearing from you. Cutting, self-mutilation, self-injury, and deliberate self-harm are some of the terms that refer to a variety of behaviors that describe the act of intentionally inflicting harm to one's body without suicidal intent, but for purposes that are not socially recognized or sanctioned. The prevalence of self-injurious behavior is unknown. However, researchers and those who work directly with young people agree that the phenomenon is increasingly popular. Today's guest, Dr. Janice Whitlock, is at the forefront of efforts to better understand this phenomenon. Dr. Whitlock is director of the Cornell Research Program on Self-Injurious Behavior in Adolescents and Young Adults in the College of Human Ecology at Cornell University. The program is dedicated to generating new research and insight about self-injury and to translating a growing body of research to increase understanding and guide treatment. Dr. Whitlock's current research focuses on early detection, intervention, and recovery, parental influence in supporting recovery and well-being, the relationship between connectedness and self-injury and suicide behaviors, and the development and evaluation of interventions for youth and parents of self-injurious youth. In this podcast, Dr. Whitlock discusses her research and the current state of the knowledge. Rebecca Alessio Arias, PhD student at the University at Buffalo School of Social Work, spoke with Dr. Whitlock by telephone. Dr. Whitlock, we want to thank you for joining us today. Thank you. So first off, what sparked your interest in this area? It's a really interesting question because I really didn't plan to study self-injury. I didn't even actually know that it existed before, say, 2003. I'd finished a doctorate on connectedness and thriving and well-being with a specific focus on how schools and communities could foster connectedness and well-being and thriving. And entered into a really interesting period where there were several people that I knew from my personal life. So young people who were children of my friends who had started to self-injure. And as somebody who had worked in the field of adolescent health and well-being, as well as who had a foster daughter with lots of issues of which self-injury wasn't one, um, and who'd grown up in the 70s and 80s where it really wasn't part of the social landscape, 
I became really curious and started asking the people that I knew that worked with children on the front line, like pediatricians and social workers and teachers and so forth, what their experience was. And to a person, everybody said that they were seeing very high levels of self-injury. So the next thing I did was to go look at the literature and see that, you know, is there a body of literature here that I just haven't been exposed to? Because it seems like something I should have run across. And there wasn't. There was very, very little about self-injury in non-clinical populations. So, you know, the community population at large, like you might find in secondary school settings. And I think the real crux came when over a period of a couple weeks, I had three people disclose that they had self-injury history to me, through people that were in my life who were close to me. And I had one of my friends who was a pediatrician estimate that about 10% of her client population self-injured at that time. My curiosity was really totally piqued because of the violence of, of self-injury and self-inflicted violence is, is something that's so different in my mind than a lot of the other behaviors that we see young people engage in that I can completely understand. I uh, started to look at the literature. We decided we would do a very small study at that time, and it blossomed into this research program that has really pretty much taken over my life. Well, can you tell me about some of your current research then? Yeah, what we have evolved from looking at the epidemiology. We were interested at the very beginning in just those basic questions like how prevalent is this and who are we seeing it among, because that wasn't known, into now because there's a much broader base of, of research in this area. It's really flourished in the last five years, I'd say into looking at how do we do intervention. And one of the directions our program is going that I also didn't expect it to take was to really look at the role of parents because so many of our analyses that are looking at uh, the evolution of self-injury longitudinally. So we have data that looks at self-injury and its relationship to a variety of other things, including suicide, at three different time points. And one of the most startling findings from a whole different set of analyses we've done is that parents emerge as a really critical protective factor in, say, determining whether somebody who has a history of non-suicidal self-injury moves on to suicide. So we're doing, uh, we just submitted a grant to do a web-based intervention with parents of kids who self-injure. And I, I think that would be a really wonderful thing to be able to get and develop. And we're also continuing some of our epidemiological work and really looking at using connectedness-based frameworks for suicide and self-injury prevention in, in um, college campuses and secondary school settings. It's very interesting work you're doing. It is. You know, the other piece I forgot to mention that's going to be picked up again here soon is one of the early lines of inquiry was what are the vectors for contagion? Like this clearly... It's a phenomenon, it's a behavior that you see in clinical populations and have seen for a while. I mean, most clinicians know it. They would associate it with borderline personality disorder. We don't see a strong association with borderline anymore in community populations. But at some point, it's pretty clear that you know, the behaviors escaped the bounds, of, as it were, of the clinical population and, and made its way into the community population of kids who were otherwise functioning fairly normally. And it became, there was, had to be some vector for contagion. So we were looking at self-injury in the media and self-injury in the internet. And we did some early work in that and found it to be very prolific in both places and that you can see very steady increases of its, of its presence as a behavioral option for stress in both places. And we're starting to pick up that work again and we'll be looking at, does, does, can you see evidence that self-injury is contagious? for example, in social networks, on the internet, for example. 
Well, we've been talking a lot about non-suicidal self-injury, but for those who don't know what it is, can you describe what is non-suicidal self-injury? The International Society for the Study of Self-Injury defines self-injury as the deliberate, direct, and self-inflicted destruction of body tissue for purposes not socially sanctioned and without suicidal intent. So this is separate from suicide? Yeah, those last two pieces, I mean, it's kind of funny to think about. It's such a simple definition, and yet it took us months and months to come up with something because every word is, is very precise. For purposes not socially sanctioned, it really refers to the fact that we do not include piercing and tattooing as non-suicidal self-injury, even though there's a fair amount of evidence that excessive piercing or tattooing is probably fulfilling an NSSI function as well for a lot of people. And then the other piece is it's very clear that phenomenologically self-injury is different than suicide, even though there's a very important relationship between the two. And that's something I think we're going to talk about a little bit. It is, by definition, an act that's not taken with the purpose of ending life, but actually for the purposes of coping and feeling better. Okay, so non-suicidal injury is not a suicide attempt. No. Yeah, I mean, what I typically tell people is if you've got a young person who's actively self-injuring, and that's what they identify, they say they're not suicidal. I mean, the intent point is really subjective, so you, you can really only discern that by talking to the person. And in this case, direct communication is, is a good policy. But if they say, no, they're not suicidal and they're actively self-injuring, then they're actively coping. So I actually don't worry about the likelihood that they're going to be committing suicide right then and there. That's not going to happen. With the exception of people who injure themselves unintentionally deep, and that does happen. And so there may be not lethal intent, but it may become lethal by accident. It's definitely a risk factor. It sounds like from what you're saying that for these individuals, it's more of a maladaptive coping mechanism. Mm-hmm. It is, and I think that's really important for people to keep in mind because it really comes from a really developmentally and healthy place. The desire to feel better is a really healthy thing. But the technique that people use to get there when they're using self-injury is, is not obviously very adaptive in the long run. You had mentioned earlier the possibility of the contagion effect. What exactly would cause self-injury? Well, that's a really interesting question, and when you ask people that, as we have and other of our colleagues have, you get a really wide range of answers. One of the trends we've seen is that in the earlier studies, the vast majority of people we asked said they accidentally discovered it, and you know, I think the idea can get seeded or planted through exposure in a movie or to a friend or in a book or something, and people may not consciously be able to call that up as, oh, that's the place I learned about self-injury, and then I decided to use it in a time of stress later. But most people would say that they just, they accidentally discovered it. Like they were in a state of high distress and they raked a pencil or a pen across their skin and it, they noticed that there was a physiological effect that down, helped them to downregulate and feel calm. Then later they try a different implement or they do it more purposefully. That, that's a really common entry story. But what we've noticed is that over time with newer generations of people answering survey questions that we're seeing more and more people, they are aware that they were exposed to it through the media or through friends. We started to have numbers of kids say that they had an older brother or sister who injured, and that was the first place they encountered it, and it seemed like it, this might be something that worked, a little bit like cutting to use a drug. So it seems to be either just this internal 
it comes out of internal need or desire that and it, to just encounter it for there's some kind of social component to it where they encounter it out there in the world and there's so much more of it to be encountered now definitely has entered sort of the social repertoire of behaviors that we see in movies and books and other media outlets and you had mentioned media before and as well as the internet what role has media and the internet played in, in non-suicidal self-injury? That's very tough to discern because they're really, you know, especially if you're looking at the role of media. For example, we did a, a study where we were looking at the incidence of non-suicidal self-injury images or language in, we did two studies. One was that on the internet and one was on movies and songs, and music and books and magazines. And it's really tough because there's no index out there that cross-lists any of these kinds of movies or books or lyrics with self-injury. So it's tough to get it. You know, I can't look at how many we had in 1960, for example, and how many we have in 2000. But to the best of our ability to construct a reasonable study, what you see is this really clear upward trend starting in, like, if we go back as far as, say, the 1960s, you see very, very few references to non-suicidal self-injury. And when you do see them, they're almost always linked to psychopathology. So somebody who was who really had some deep psychopathology. As we approach, you know, the 2000 mark, the millennial mark, you start to see the incidence of self, non-suicidal self-injury in books and movies outside of that domain. So, for example, the movie 13, which came out 2005 or something, maybe, that had some really strong imagery around non-suicidal self-injury with the main character using it actively, like a drug. And they even filmed it as a drug scene. It's really fascinating. She is a character which a lot of teen girls could identify with. She was definitely struggling, but she wasn't psychopathic in any way. and She wasn't clearly clinical. So it's really what we've seen since in the last decade or so is you trace lots of points where there's, there's imagery that basically communicates this is something that you can do when you're feeling stressed, like take a drink. So instead of take a drink, you can do this act, and it has this physiological effect of downregulating. And then we also saw the same thing on the Internet when we started looking at message boards. And that study is interesting because it came about as a result of one of our uh, research associates saying actively that she had major issues with self-injury. She's one of the reasons we started this project, actually. And she was part of our team, but she said, you have to go look at it on the Internet. It was 2004 or five before even YouTube. Yeah, it was right around the time that mostly you saw message boards. And she said, I can't be a part of that study. I can't go on there, but you really need to go take a look at it. And we ended up finding hundreds and hundreds of message board sites that were specifically dedicated to self-injury. And some of them were very regulated, and a lot of them were not. And they weren't specifically pro-self-injury in all cases, but there was a lot of sharing of stories about why and how and sometimes very specific and detail about how. It was, it's a really interesting world. You can see the same phenomenon on YouTube now. There are probably over a thousand YouTube videos dedicated specifically to self-injury. And the point may not be to, to spread it. I want you to try it too, but it definitely introduces the idea into a potentially vulnerable mind. Right. So it sounds like perhaps some of these message boards and these blogs and these YouTube videos could also have some positive aspects, but some of them could also be triggering for certain people. Right, exactly. That's definitely one of the things that we concluded. 
and people, and it, it can happen at a fairly subconscious level where people begin to identify with the stories, the narratives of the people who are on there and they're talking about, because they spend a lot of time ruminating in a way or co-ruminating about how it is in their life that they ended up doing this and how it makes them feel and how they have this sort of love-hate relationship with it. And we did see a fair amount of evidence of what we call lurkers, you know, just people who clearly weren't injuring but were interacting and were curious. And, and I would hypothesize, even though we haven't tested this yet, that it's a potential site for conversion from non-self-interest to self-injury. Very interesting how um, social media and the Internet has really taken away with this, like that it's really impacting this behavior in different ways that we didn't really think that it would. That's interesting. Looking back, is there one population that non-suicidal self-injury seems to affect more than others? That's a good question. I mean, demographically, we don't see, well, there's, a, there's two trends demographically that are important. One is that I don't see much difference in socioeconomic status, and I don't see much difference in race. We do find, some studies do find that Caucasian students or young people are slightly more likely to self-injure than others. But a lot of those effects wash out when you start to add other variables in. And I'm certainly getting plenty of calls from school counselors and in uh, areas that are largely minority, saying that they've got outbreaks of self-injury. So that's an interesting storyline, what the differences that aren't there, particularly because in the uh, media, non-suicidal self-injury is often portrayed as a middle to upper class white girl phenomenon. We really don't see that that holds true in real life. We do see that females are more likely to self-injure than males in most studies. But again, that really varies by the population that's being looked at, and it's really fascinating. I've specifically looked at that in, in all the studies. We've done meta-analyses of, of that and seen that there's a big split. Some studies find a gender difference, some don't. We tend to find about 70% female, 30% male in our studies, but we are largely looking at college students. And the other place where the only place where we and other people consistently find a difference when they're looking for it is in sexual orientation. So, and it's really a profound difference. It doesn't wash out in the analyses no matter what I put in. So what we see in particular is that people in the middle who tend to, so we use a Kinseyan sexual orientation question that starts with who are you sexually attracted to or aroused by? And it says, you know, only women, mostly women, but some men, and it goes all the way down. It's a seven-point scale. So when we collapse that, what we see is that people in the middle of the scale who would probably be classified if you had to classify as, say, bisexual, are at significantly higher risk for non-suicidal self-injury than anybody else. But there's a real gender relationship there because it's not everybody. It's women in particular. So that in both of our large studies, about almost 50% of all women who were in the middle of the scale had a history of non-suicidal self-injury. What we find is that people that are on the, the if you're comparing to fully straight people, people who are classified as fully lesbian or fully gay are not at much higher risk at all. It's really the middle. It's fascinating. It's a really interesting trend. We've seen that and other people have seen that. And there are now people really looking specifically at that effect and trying to figure out exactly what's going on. And I, I know that in the next few years, we'll have some good information about that. But that's the one demographic characteristic that really seems to consistently matter. And you had said that in your studies, 70% were female and 30% were male. Now, did you see any differences between the genders in terms of types of self-injury that they engage in? Yeah, there's some sort of stereotypical differences that you might expect. I mean, females are a little more likely to, to cut and self-scratch 
than males, and males are a little bit more likely to report hitting themselves or something else with the intention of hurting the self. So, for example, and that's actually pretty interesting because what it looks like is that for a lot of guys who self-injure, the form that it takes looks like externally focused aggression. So they will report getting in a fight or punching objects, but with self-injurious intent. To the outside world, it looks only like outward focused aggression, but they know that what they're really trying to do is to hurt themselves. And, you know, you see that pattern when we're looking at even suicides and mass killings on college campuses or on secondary school campuses where almost always the shooter will commit suicide at the end. So you can see that they get welded together, the external focused aggression and the internal focused aggression. But what the world tends to focus on is the external piece. So we see that. We see that that kind of trend. But by and large, there's not a lot of differences in forms. We do find that men are more likely than women to report a social element to self-injury so that they either start self-injuring in groups, maybe as part of a dare. We've had quite a few stories around that. Like one man who talked about starting in the military because it was events that they would do on their off time about who was more macho and more intense, like who could stand having a flame held to their skin. And what he noticed is that he started to do that on his own because there was a physiological effect associated with it that he liked. I've heard that story or variations on that story quite a bit for men. And then they'll also report a little more likely than women to report actually undertaking self-injury in a social setting so that someone else is injuring them on, at their request as a means of hurting themselves. And they're also more likely, men are more likely to combine drugs and alcohol with self-injury than women are. That's a, a very interesting difference between men and women. It seems like men start off with a more social interaction part of it, whereas women tend to do it a little secretively. Yeah, it's definitely what we see. But I, you know, I want to make it clear that the common idea of the you know, private loan self-injurer who's injuring on their own and nobody really knows about it still is the most common type and that who's injuring for affective regulation. It really is the most common type for women and men. But there does seem to be the subgroup of men in particular who have this more social angle to it and they are more likely than women to get into it through a social doorway. Very interesting. In your 2008 article on identification and features of latent classes in a college population of emerging adults, you identified different classes of self-injurers. Could you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, what we found is that there are basically three variables, or it's actually two variables, but looked at in three different ways that seem to really predict severity well. And that's what we were looking at. I mean, who do we really need to worry about? So somebody shows up in a clinician's office, who is somebody who's more likely to be, say, suicidal or to have other sort of comorbid conditions going on? And what we found is that there are basically three different types, and one is the low-level type is characterized by using types of methods or forms that are less likely to be potentially lethal, to do less body damage, like scratching, for example. It's kind of hard to get too, too deep scratching. Once you add a knife to that, then it's different. But people who are reporting only doing scratching or pulling out hair or eyelashes, that kind of thing, with a self-injurious intent. And coupled with low frequency, low lifetime frequency, those are the low category or the low severity group. And then the middle severity group was interesting because it was more likely to be male than anybody, than any group. And they were more likely to use what we considered moderate lethality forms, so punching of themselves or something else with self-injurious intent. 
something that was going to leave bruising on the skin. And they weren't reporting real low frequency, but they weren't reporting real high frequency either. So they were sort of the mid-frequency in terms of lifetime frequency group. And then the high group was, it was 70% female, 30% male, I think, or maybe it was 60-40. It was really close. And they were the classic cutter in the movies, you know, that group. They were using high lethal methods, usually cutting was probably the favored form there. They were reporting high numbers of lifetime incidents of self-injury, and they were reporting using lots of different forms. So the most lethal form they may use was, was cutting, but for example, but they might be reporting using four or five or six forms over the life course. Now that our listeners have a good understanding of who it affects, what is it, and other factors that play into it, for the practitioners listening out there, what interventions have been shown to be effective for treatment? Well, it's a really good question, and I have to say that we don't have good data on that. At this point, most practitioners tend to report using DBT, dialectical behavior therapy, with some degree of success. That's probably the most commonly used form and the, the form that seems to be the favored form because of its efficacy. But having said that, nobody's reporting that even DBT is wildly successful. By and large, people who injure, especially if they're presenting with that as a primary characteristic of a psychological profile, are a tough group to work with. It's one of the reasons a lot of them ended up with borderline label. But and they don't stop until they're ready to stop, till they see that they want to stop. So. DBT is the most common and probably the most efficacious. And anything, it seems to be most of the treatment models where we have some anecdotal or empirical evidence that they're having an effect use some form of mindfulness or something that helps people slow down long enough to identify what they're feeling and to separate from the emotion and to be able to breathe or walk or do something through the urge long enough that their urge to injure passes. So they really need, what it seems to me is that we have a lot of people who injure who are really great. They have amazing emotion antennas. They absorb a lot of emotion from the external environment and they they self-generate quite a bit, but they have a really hard time managing it. So the self-injury helps to downregulate because it engages, to the best of our ability to tell, it engages the endogenous opioid system, which can bring somebody from a state of high education into a state of calm very quickly, at least people for whom it works. It doesn't work for everybody. The other form of self-injury that we see quite a bit is somebody who's completely dissociated, and this is usually associated with a history of trauma, often it's sexual abuse. That's a very strong link in the literature, the history of sexual abuse and self-injury. So they may be going from a state of absolute dissociation into a state of some degree of reintegration through self-injury. Well, it sounds like you have a lot of interesting research on the horizon, and we look forward to hearing more about your research development. And it sounds like there's a lot that we still have to learn about this issue. Yes. All right. Well, we thank you very much for your time today, and we look forward to hearing more about it. Okay. Thank you. You've been listening to Dr. Janice Whitlock discuss her research on self-injurious behavior in adolescents and young adults. Thanks for listening, and join us again next time for more lectures and conversations on social work practice and research. Hi, I'm Nancy Smith, Professor and Dean at the University at Buffalo School of Social Work. Thanks for listening to our podcast. 
For more information about who we are, our history, our programs, and what we do, we invite you to visit our website at www.socialwork.buffalo.edu. At UB, we are living proof that social work makes a difference in people's lives.